What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, Join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. The Hallie Kasser Jane Show Talk Radio for Fine Minds airs Wednesdays, 3 p.m. Eastern, and is always available for your listening pleasure at halliekasserjane.com. And thank you so much for joining me. I am Hallie Kesser-Jane. Today on the Hallie Kesser-Jane Show, I will be speaking with the man considered to be one of the finest spiritual guides of our time, a consummate storyteller, and an eloquent spiritual teacher. His name is Mark Nepo, and this is one conversation you don't want to miss. But before we begin, a brief message from our sponsors. You are listening to The Hallie Kesser Jane Show, talk radio for fine minds. The Hallie Kesser Jane Show is always available online at HallieKesserJane.com. Today, The Hallie Kesser Jane Show is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. If you want to listen to it, Audible has it. With over 150,000 titles in virtually every genre, you'll find what you're looking for. Get a free audiobook and 30-day trial today by signing up at www.audibletrial.com forward slash The Hallie Kasser Jane Show. Is someone you love living with frequent pain? Are they spending more time just sitting in a chair or lying in bed or going to the ER more often? Other than taking them to the doctor, you may not know what else to do. Treasure Coast Hospice can help in more ways than you may realize. Even if you don't think your loved one is ready for hospice care, their experts can evaluate your loved one's condition and direct you to the right resources in our community. Call Treasure Coast Hospice to learn more or visit pchospice.org. Poet, philosopher, author, cancer survivor, Mark Nepo has been breaking a path of spirituality inquiry for more than 40 years. He has inspired readers and seekers all over the world with his book, The Book of Awakening, which in 2010 catapulted to number one on the New York Times bestseller list when Oprah Winfrey chose his book as one of her ultimate favorite things. Considered one of the finest spiritual guides of our time, a consummate storyteller, and an eloquent spiritual teacher. Nepo's 15 books and recorded nine audio projects have been translated into more than 20 languages. Now he has a new book, The Endless Practice, Becoming Who You Were Born to Be, a guide to how the soul works in the world, a revelatory piece 
focused on steering each of us to become who we were born to be through the endless practice of engaging our heart and soul in the world. There's much to discuss with Mark Nepo, including the fact that he will be joining Oprah Winfrey's 2014 The Life You Want Weekend Tour. Let's begin our conversation. I want to welcome to the Halle Caster Jane Show, Mark Nepo. Hi, Mark. Hi, it's wonderful to be with you. Well, it's my pleasure to have you here. I, I am such a fan of your work, as so many are. And, and a question I have to ask you, before we even go anywhere with all of this, is if you were born with this deep understanding of how the universe works and your poetic wisdom, or, or is that something acquired through your own trials and tribulations and the vast conspiracy called life? Talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank you for that question. Let me... Let me offer that, as I will, many of the questions, not just in terms of me, but in how I think we all are equipped. I, you know, I, I think that we all are born with an enormous understanding and an, an enormous wakefulness. And it's almost as if we have a light that experience, the friction of experience wears the covering so the light can show through. And Great love and great suffering is what wears our light into the open. So I think that I was born with a, um, well, you know, I, I, the world, God, universe, Tao, everything spoke to me in metaphor, even as a kid before I understood I didn't have any language for it. But I think, you know, as I went through my cancer journey in my 30s, as I went through just the things that everybody goes through, you know, the first the first heartbreak from first love, you know, everything, everything along the way opened me and grounded me until, you know, I'm 63 now. And, but, you know, I think that along the way, especially in the last 15 years, I've learned and accepted that, you know, there's nowhere to go. We are opened to the mystery that is everywhere. And it doesn't mean that we don't strive for things or have goals or want to experience or travel. But I think that I think we all hold on to dreams and ambitions and goals too tightly. I think they're really they're all meant to exercise the heart into inhabiting its aliveness. And you know, and we create and build and repair and do a great many things along the way, but it's really for us to be as alive as possible. So that light can come out of us. I want to talk to you about that childhood of yours. You know, it's interesting to me. I kind of like was nosing around into your life. That's what <laughs> I do for a living is nose around in people's lives. I couldn't find a whole lot. Uh, tell me a little bit about that childhood of yours and share with us. Were you a good kid, an intellectual, a sports-minded kid? What? Who, were you? Who was the young Mark Nepo? <laughs> Well, you know, I think I was a little bit of all those things. I, I think that, you know, as a as a boy, and I grew up on Long Island, you know, outside of New York City, a mystical little boy who didn't know what that meant, born to agnostic slash atheistic parents, Jewish. And, you know, my parent, my father, I lost my father this September, past September at 93. And my mother is still alive. She's 88. I'm, uh, I have a wonderful brother who's uh, 62 uh, now. But, you know, I, I think that my parents were very intelligent, very well-read. My father was a, a gifted high school teacher at Brooklyn Tech High School, worked, a master woodworker. And my mother uh, was very gifted with her hands and was a bookkeeper and a quilter. 
but they were very literal. You know, they they really responded to the the facts of the world, and of course, they get a son who speaks in metaphor, <laughs> and so I'm sure it wasn't easy for them. You know, in a lot of ways, we didn't speak the same language for a long time. I'm not sure if we ever spoke the same language. So I'm not sure, you know, <clears throat> they knew exactly what to do with me. Gee, I can relate to that. Totally. And that makes for some very interesting transition from childhood to slash, you know, what, teenage years to adulthood. How did that go, that transition? Well, you know, I, I think that, you know, I, I wound up playing basketball in high school and in the beginning of college till I, I tore ligaments in one of my ankles and that kind of ended my basketball career. But, you know, it was interesting because even as a kid, I loved basketball, but I wasn't too interested in winning. You know, I, I played well because I immersed myself. I loved being in the air, and I loved when the ball would go through the basket without touching, the, you know, just go straight through. I, and I think that, you know, that's kind of indicative, I didn't know it at the time, but of really just you know, this kind of edge between the inner and the outer. That's that's what I love, really just experiencing that. And, you know, I really started writing poetry because the first woman I fell in love with broke up with me and broke my heart. And, and I have a, a poem about that in Reduced to Joy all these years later called Without Knowing, which really speaks about, you know, the and, and I don't need to read it, it's a little long, but let me tell you, because I think it's an interesting moment. You know, I was working in Starbucks where I live here in Michigan, which is kind of my field office. Always have to have some kind of that cafe time. And I saw this young couple across the way and it was clear they were falling in love with each other. And it was very sweet. And and all of a sudden I you know, and I could tell by the way the young man just kind of brushed the young woman's hair out of her eyes. And all of a sudden, like from 40 years across a gulf of 40 years, that first woman I fell in love with, that presence was right there with me. And I thought, wow, you know, to feel that after all those years. And I had this kind of insight from picking up this strange conversation in my 60s that, you know, we really, first love really allows us to see our unformed possibility. And then it takes years for experience to hammer us into some kind of tool or instrument. But really, first love just kind of mirrors to us that we are possible. And so there I was, and I and I felt all of this. And you know, I didn't even know if she was still alive. But across this continent of time, you know, I could say thank you, thank you. That's beautiful. You married. You taught. Yes. You got cancer. I think you divorced. You remarried. Talk yes. to me. Your lessons. Not so different from anybody else's lessons. I think that when people talk to somebody like you, who has got such a handle on it, and sees it so clearly in a way that we all wish we could see it, that we think that you're somehow different. But you're really not, are you? Oh, no, 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 no. All of my writing, you know, I, I mean, I was just teaching at the Wake Up Festival in Estes Park, you know, and whenever I gather with people, the first thing I say is, thanks for coming. I don't have any answers. You know, <laughs> we're, we're here to compare notes. 
you're here to compare notes honestly about what it is to be here and I can be clear one I can be clear with you today and I'll get off the phone and trip taking the garbage out and try to remember what was it I said you know I mean that's one of the kind of standing jokes with my wife Susan you know I'll have a hard day or a hard week and she'll gently say you know you should read one of your books and uh and I'll go well thanks that really helps a lot right now. That's so helpful that's so, cute you know, I think that I think that, you know, there's an interesting journey, as we all know, in relationship where we, and not, not just with lover relationships, but with dear friends, too, where we really, we really individuate and work out who we are and move away from the patterns that we've inherited and the ones that we then so willingly keep going. And, you know, I think that I grew over the years. I've been married. This is my third marriage over the years. My first marriage was very, not very, you know, it was a couple of years, and we were both just very, you know, um, insecure, eager, young, knowing nothing, you know, people. And, you know, my second marriage was considerably longer. It was, you know, 18 years. And I think the biggest thing there is that I think it was a, uh, nobody's fault. The relationship uh, went its on its way in a different course. It was, you know, can't, the cancer journey, and sometimes this happens, you know, imagine, imagine that you're in the water swimming and a large, large meteor lands or a boulder or something, you know, big, lands, and if it lands between you, the force of that event just pushes the current around you in opposite directions. It's nobody's fault. Sometimes that event might land on the same side and you're, the current throws you further in the same direction you can still reach each other but you know in the case of my second marriage you know the cancer journey just landed in in the momentum of that the gravity of it uh sent us in different directions in life and you know i think that you know i woke up on the other side i think the best way to describe this is that and i think this is true not just for me and not just for dramatic things like cancer but this is what i meant earlier that erosion makes mountains and trees and rivers beautiful if they can withstand it but they are eventually reduced to their inner beauty this is where my book reduced to joy is that that book of poems is centered around this notion that i've learned and for human beings that erosion is the life of obstacles the weather of circumstance the the pain of suffering and we're worn to our inner beauty if if we can hold each other up. And so for me in my 30s, still here after my cancer journey, there, you know, I think that I love my first, second wife. I think I love everyone in my life is to the bottom of my heart. But here this cancer journey excavated a new depth. And when I woke on the other side, it was nobody's fault, but I didn't feel that relationship to the new bottom. And I hadn't survived not to be touched there. And so it was a very difficult and painful uh, couple of years to understand what this new depth was and how to be with it and how to be with those and how to, in some form of integrity, be true to what I'd been open to and and to the person I had journeyed with. So, yeah, and, you know, my wife Susan, we've been together now, uh, going, well, 20, 20 years now. 
we're talking about these things doesn't. There's a lot of twenties and eighteens. It doesn't seem like <laughs> at all. All my marriages put together aren't one twentieth or one eighteenth of yours. <laughs> so good for you. You learn something along the way. Why do you write? Talk to me about why you write. Oh, uh, you know, I I Temple University is ranked among the top fifty public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu slash visit. Right to be as close to the pulse of life as possible. You know, this really gets to a big learning for me through my cancer journey, and that is that writing, the life of expression, is how we stay as close to aliveness as possible, as close to others as possible. It's not, you know... When I was young, like everyone else, I thought it was to produce great art. And if I worked hard enough and long enough, maybe, maybe, maybe after a lifetime, I might contribute a great poem or story or something to the world of literature. But then a funny thing happened, you know, almost dying, being on that precipice. It wasn't about trying to write great things. Now it's shifted. Now I was needing to discover truth in order to live. Now expression took on much greater meaning. It wasn't about what it produced. And now, now all these years later, I want to be the poem. The writing is the means of inquiry. So I write because in a lot, you know, all the spiritual traditions, the contemplative practices, many of them instruct you to, you know, not hold on to your thoughts, to try to drop everything. Well, I get in that space and I just take notes. And the trail are the poems and the books. The Book of Awakening, groundbreaking for many. But how about for you? Look what that book did. Oprah, enormous success. Could you, first of all, have ever imagined what happened? Oh, no, no, (laughs) not at all. (laughs) Right? And then I have to ask you, so how did it change the metaphor that is your life? Well, how did the recognition of the book? Mm -hmm. Well, let me back up and talk about how the writing of the book changed my life for a second. Mm-hmm. That, because this is the, this is how I've come to understand what great art really is. Great art is not what's produced. Great art is any act of expression in any form by which the person it moves through is changed for having carried it into the world. That's the transformative quality of what comes through us. It's great if we're changed by having encountered it. So having written that book, which really it took me three years back, it started it in 1997, and it was after my cancer journey, and I had seen day books everywhere in recovery rooms and waiting rooms, and, you know, in, in the lay population that was recovering from anything, these books were used. They were beat up. They were in cars. They were in bathrooms. They were in kitchens. And it, you know, it just like it struck me that if if I could fill that form with small doses of what matter, it would be a way of giving back. It would be a way of having something be helpful, not just to people going through life-threatening situations, but to anyone on the journey. And that's how. And so, actually, the writing of it was quite a rigorous. Because you, know, you would think it's one little entry for every day of the year, so it seems small. Well, as soon as I got into it, it's enormous because there's 365 of them. And so I was, I was scoured you know, clean 
by bringing this out. So, and then it had a life of its own. And I think the discipline in writing it was not to stick with it. It was only to write when it was coming from my heart. As soon as it moved up into my head, the discipline was to put it down. Because my hope was that every single day, every single entry, I hoped this for all my writing, was coming from the heart. So now you fast forward, and it was, you know, it was in 2010, 10, 10, the book had been out for 10 years, uh, when Oprah discovered the book and, you know, kindly related to it. Um, and of course that, you know, my work had some kind of following up to that point, um, but certainly, you know, it just went to a whole other level. Uh, and how has that, you know, changed me or changed things? I don't think it's changed me. It's been a blessing that has, you know, just my opportunities to be with people, to be with someone like you, to, to you know, um, the, the ripples have just been enormous. And so I'm blessed to be able to teach and write full-time and travel to different places to be with people. But, you know, I have to say that in the, in the large scheme of things, you know, throughout history, you know, for every someone like me, there's ten other amazing voices who we'll never hear of. You know, for every Walt Whitman, there were three that we don't even have their work. And for every, you know, and then you go back in a different way to, you know, so let me put this in perspective, and then we'll come back to the present. But, you know, five years on the other side of my cancer journey, I was going for a checkup. And, you know, they're always nerve-wracking because, you you know, I thought I was fine when I was told I had cancer. So every year you go back and it's like, I feel fine. So anyway, I, I went through the my checkup and my blessed doctor, my oncologist said I was fine and I'm taking a huge relief and I go out to leave the practice and as I walk into the waiting room there's a woman who collapses right next to me and there's a code red and everybody swoops her up and uh, you know there's all kinds of things and, and all of a sudden I'm left alone standing there before the door out into the world relieved that I'm going out into the world and how do I ever forget that what's happening to her and she was scooped up, and God knows if she even made it. And so, you know, but for a hiccup of God, she could be talking to you, and I'd be gone. So I never take for a second for granted that it doesn't have to be this way. And, you know, I'm forever humbled and grateful that, you know, I just keep, I consider myself an inner pioneer, an inner um, explorer, and so, you know, I just keep doing the work and trying to keep people company and very grateful that, that all this has somehow happened. <laughs> right. There, there's no doubt that you're a, a wise man and that you've learned well from the lessons of your own life. I love the fact that you've decided to give back what you've learned. But, you know, when I read you, Mark, I think of you first and foremost as a poet. And I want to talk to you about that because I, what come, came to my mind in all of this is that there's a difference between how a poet sees life and how those who are not poets see life. Are you more in tune with the metaphors of life? And each of our lives is a metaphor for sure, I, I believe. But each is lived in our own particular iambic pentameter too. And 
how, is that how you your your rhythm is just slightly different from the rest of ours? The I view think- from your from your I have to say the view from your heart, your eyes, uh, and your words as I've read them and gotten to know you and studying you is phenomenal. Talk oh, to me. Thank you. You know, I I think that I I do. I've been blessed to see the world in metaphor, and that is, and all spiritual traditions talk about this with different language, but everything's connected. And the role of the poet is to praise, reveal, and repair the connections. And everyone in their heart is a poet. Everyone knows, whether you write or not, everyone knows. That's why the work resonates, because when I reveal a connection and you see it, you know it. You know it directly from your own poet's heart. So when I can go deep enough, this is, this is the thing that is key in how I understand the connection between human beings, is that when I can go deep enough into me, I find you. And when you go deep enough into you, you find me. So what does that say? That says that you know, I can get stuck in my own personality. I can get stuck in my own story. But if I go honestly to the depth of my own story, my own life, I touch on the place of all souls. I touch into the well of everyone. And that common pool of spirit is where we all drink from, paradoxically, in our own solitude. But that's where we know each other. So when I can touch on that, that's why, that's why in those moments... You know, I often have people kindly say, well, God, it seems like you wrote this one just for me. Well, I'm not that smart, but that's why. Because when I touch down and work with what I've been given, and I can touch into that common pool, well, we drink from the same pool. We drink the same water. Now, from there, we know each other. So in a second, let me throw this in then. You, of course, recognize that at the end of the day, as separate as we all think we are, we're really not separate at all. Absolutely. And the key to awakening, which we're going to talk about in the second half hour, is basically to be awakened to that reality. And once you're there, you can let go of some of the stuff that keeps you separate and apart in your head, probably more, right, from, from others. Talk to me about that, because I think that is beautiful. Well, thank, I mean, that's, I think that's kind of the spiritual physics of things, you know, the way gravity can't be argued, I think this is a fundamental spiritual principle that we we are at heart the same, and you know, th- there have been basically two kind of uh, camps throughout throughout history in this regard. There there is though there are those, and there's a tradition that believes, hey, we're not far from animals, and we. You know, if we we need control, we need our energy and who we are, we need parameters, we need law, we need, you know, moral principles so that we don't spill out of the box because what's there is not to be trusted. And then there's the other camp, of which I am obviously uh, more comfortable, that believes that we are, and Plato said, we, we are born whole but we need each other to be complete. Mm-hmm. It's a life of experience that completes us. So it's like, you know, it's like a match. Mat- the match inherently has light, but until it strikes against something in the world, that light is not revealed. 
And just like that, our light is revealed when our gift strikes against the needs of the world. Yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking. (laughs) I'm taking it all in. I'm drinking. I'm supposed to be doing an interview, and I'm listening very intently. Talk to me about this. Well, that's my job, right? Why are we a mystery to each other and to ourselves? That seems like a joke of the universe in a way, that, that we have to work so hard to unravel the mystery. What are well, your thoughts? I, I, you know, I think that's because we get sidetracked. Many of the, and this has happened forever, and this is part of our work that no one can avoid, that many of the ways in which we are asked to work and strive and build and create and repair, um, you know, they're all necessary ways to engage us full and wholeheartedly in this mystery of life to, but not, you know, we tend, like if I want some, I want to work towards something, then I make all of a sudden what I want becomes the God when it's just a vehicle to immerse us in life more completely. And through those vehicles, through those efforts, we touch into grace we touch into grace and find each other. And this is, you know, like it or not, great love and great suffering open our hearts. And this is the simple, timeless work of compassion is that, you know, until I fall down, I don't understand why it takes so long for someone to get up. Until someone, you know, uh, until I see, until I have a little bout of something uh, pain in my back, I don't have patience or understand why the old man in the grocery store takes so long and holds everybody up to make it from the register to the parking lot. Yeah, but now, yeah, once I have a twinge in my back, now I get it. And now, now, even if I don't know his name, we're connected. So the more experience we have that we don't fight and bury, because we live in a culture that's, that runs from its feelings, when it's through the life of feelings that our connections are revealed. And once they're revealed, they can't be hidden again. They can't be hidden again. Before we go to break, here's, here's my question. If we have to ask ourselves only one question in our lives, what do you think that question should be? I, I think that question should be how, well, it's got to be a two-parter for me. Go. You're allowed. You're allowed. <laughs> All right. The first part is how can I open my heart to the living universe? And the second part is what kind of bridge can I be? Say that how, again. How can I open my heart to the living universe and what kind of bridge can I be to other living things? How can I be a connector? How can life move through me to bring living things together? Not just out of altruism, but because through an open heart, we feel and find and refine our... Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, 
even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, any where with daily bonuses that should brighten your day low actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus place in the universe and by bridging also not just out of altruism we also find our connection our living connection to everything else in in the world and that's the source of resilience is the connection you know, when a fish is swimming with the current, it's useless to ask how much is it going under its own muscle and how much of the power of the current. In that moment, it's the same thing. And it's the same thing when I love you. In that moment, I am in the stream of everyone who ever loved. And the same, paradoxically, when I am not drowning in my pain, but meeting my, facing my pain, I am in the river of everyone who's ever had to face pain. And there is a buoyancy there that is the source of resilience because we are not alone. And it's when we, we retreat that we double our pain and we double our isolation. And, and let me, you know, as we were saying earlier, everyone does this. I do this. Everyone does this. The same way that you inhale and exhale, the same way that our muscles expand and contract, the same way that we blink how many times a day. The heart opens and closes. That's how it breathes. So it's not about being in a permanent state of openness. It's the dynamism of being human is staying engaged in the the opening and closing of the heart a hundred times a day. And the life that's pumped through us when we can stay committed to that practice. I'm speaking with one of the great spiritual minds of our day. His name is Mark Nepo. He's out with a new book, every bit as fascinating as those which preceded it. The title... The Endless Practice, Becoming Who You Were Born to Be. We'll talk about Mark's new book and much more after the break. You were listening to The Hallie Kesser Jane Show, talk radio for fine minds, always available online at HallieKesserJane.com. Stay with us. You are listening to Bits. A little bit of knowledge goes a long way. I am Hallie Kasser Jane. Today's bit comes from World War I soldier and poet Siegfried Sassoon, who said, Oh, but everyone was a bird. The song was wordless. The singing will never be done. I am Hallie Kasser Jane, host of the Hallie Kesser Chain Show. Talk radio for fine minds, bringing you bits on the art of the poet. For more bits on a wide range of subjects, visit HallieKesserChain.com.
We're back on the Hallie Cancer Jane Show, Talk Radio for Fine Minds. Today I'm talking with poet, philosopher, author, cancer survivor, Mark Nepo, the author who inspired readers and seekers all over the world with his The Book of Awakening. Fifteen titles later and nine recorded audio projects, Mark Nepo is out with another powerful book, The Endless Practice, Becoming Who You Were Born to Be. Welcome again, Mark Nepo. Nice to have you here. Oh, it's great. It's great to be in this river together. I'll tell you what, it's a great swim. I'm enjoying every moment of it. Thanks for being part of it and letting me be part of yours. So, Mark, why this book? Why now? Is there a story behind it? Well, yeah, you know, after a while, you know, when I was young, of course, like all young writers, I just worried if I would ever finish a single book. But, you know, having been in this river long enough, you know, that's not a worry anymore. This is the space I live in and swim in. And the truth is, whether other whether writers admit this or not, I will, that, you know, I think we write about what we need to learn. I don't write because I have great conclusions to offer. I write if each book is an inquiry, and then the, the book is the trail of that inquiry. And if I've been honest enough, there might be something worth sharing. So in this book, you know, if you look back, I mean, looking forward, I haven't written one book that was the book it started out to be. Because mm-hmm. once it gets alive, it writes you. So, but looking back, there's obviously a, a learning curve. You know, the Book of Awakening is, you know, how to here, how to have the life you want by being present to the life you have, the subtitle, how to wake up, how to stay awake. And then, you know, that led to the exquisite risk. So, okay, if I'm going to be here and I'm going to be awake, I have to learn how to take risks. So that was an inquiry into risk. And that risk isn't dangerous. Risk is beautiful and necessary. Scary sometimes, but it's mysterious and wholesome. So then, you know, my next book after that, and again, I didn't know this going forward. This wasn't a plan at all, believe me. <laughs> then the next book was Finding Inner Courage. And this was because, okay, if I'm going to be here, I look back, I understand now, and I'm going to take risks. Well, the next step is i got to be more courageous. And so it didn't matter that I survived cancer and people have said to me, oh, you're, you're courageous. Everyone who, who has been called courageous, most people say, me? Uh, You know, I just did what I had to do. Oh, I guess that's courageous. And, you know, but I realized that everyone has an edge. Wherever it is, I had run to the edge of my ability to be courageous wherever that line was, and I needed to learn how to be more courageous. And so, so that led to that inquiry, you know. And so from there, it's kind of, okay, away taking risks, learning how to be courageous a little more, a little bit more. Where does it lead? It humbly leads just to be here and listen. And that, you know, the book before this one was 7,000 Ways to Listen. And and so this book, The Endless Practice, was really, you know, after all of that, is okay, we are, I've understood that we are on the edge all the time. For me, uh, you know, the inner life is not a refuge, it's a resource. We live in the world. We have no choice. And it's like, you know, uh, two fish and one is tired of all the water coming at him. And he says to the other, I don't like it in the water. Get me out of here. Well, good luck. (laughs) Good luck. You know, this is where we are. We are fish in the river of experience. And the inner light and the outer light carve us and shape us into who we are. And it's an endless practice. 
We don't arrive, we grow. And so as I've been learning about this, this is where, you know, it's like each book now is like, it's like I go to the mystical ocean and each book is a bucket and I scoop it as, with as much as I can and that becomes the next book and then I go back with another bucket. <laughs> right, I get you. I totally get you. You brought, you you kind of defined what the endless practices, the ongoing work, but talk to me about becoming who you were born to be. So we were we all born to be something? Is that what you're going where you're going with it? And we are all, we are all born every person I believe is born with a deep and unfathomable gift. And while in nature you know, the Mechthild was a female mystic in the Middle Ages, and she said, birds do not fall from the sky and fish don't drown in water. Each of God's creatures must find its God-given element. And it's easy for fish and birds in that sense because they know what their element is. But the mystery and added gift and challenge for human beings is it's not really clear for us. It's not really clear for us where we will fly or where we will swim. And so we have to go on this journey, this endless journey, to figure out and discover how that light that's in the match of our soul, what do we have to strike against for that light to ignite itself? And, And of course, unlike a physical match, once the light, the match of the soul is lit, it stays lit. It stays lit. So we are in this journey of being loved and worn open to our gift and we're also we're also the only creatures that can be the living dead so you know when an animal doesn't live in its element it dies it physically dies you know we have this consciousness we have this amazing gift and if it's not used right in a proper way which mean which i mean by that is wholehearted way then we still walk around and we pay the bills and we have conversations, but the light the lights out, the lights out, and it is so painful. But the beauty about being a soul and a body in time on earth is that at any moment we can come back alive. And this, this is the, the endless practice, the endless practice which no one can tell you or me how to do. We can talk about it, but what's universal and so life-giving is also very, very personal. Each of us has to find our own particular practice of how to inhabit this, this gift we've been given. So to become who we were born to be, it's not like, oh, I was born to be president or born to be a painter or born to be a poet. I was born with this mysterious light and warmth and unnameable unnameable spirit. And what do I have to do willfully, and also what I can't help will happen to me, how I receive what happens to me, will let that light out. And when that happens, when that happens, I have moments of oneness and whole living. So, so I'll, and I'll stop after this, but this one is that I have come to understand eternity not as the unending sequence of time, but as the moment inhabited so completely that we experience all time. Hmm. Wow, that's fascinating. I think you're the first person I've ever heard say that. (laughs) 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 That's original, something. I love originality, and I love that. But you just said eternity. I want to talk about 
now. I want to talk about the moment of yeah. now. With with now, there's no place to go. Yeah. So so this is the thing about and why so many of the traditions speak and all the spiritual practices try to return us to now. You know, we, we kind of made a little bit of a cartoon out of this, as it you know it rightfully has a lot of attention. But without really being with it, it turns into a cartoon. It doesn't mean that I can just wildly be in this moment and have no sense of past or future and no emotional responsibility to anyone. It's not a license just to be wild and crazy. Being in the moment of now means that I am so present that I actually feel not only my life, but by opening my heart, I also feel other life. This is the moment when you, you know, when suddenly I might know you and we might talk, we might have coffee weekly, but then one day when you're exhausted and I'm a little heartbroken and we look into each other's eyes a little bit longer than normal, then all of a sudden we see a depth where we understand, not only understand each other, but it ripples into the depth of everything around us. Or when I'm in nature and I'm on a, like last week, I was in Estes Park and uh, teaching and, you know, the light at the end of the day on the top of the mountain. And I slowed enough to take that in. And all of a sudden, I could feel the age of those mountains. And I could feel how small and yet eternal my little and big soul was. I was feeling the mountain. So this is, you know, the power of now opens us at Cartoli, of course, it opens us so deeply. But it's like, it's like when you climb that mountain, when you're in the presence fully of any moment, we have different eyes, we have different ears. So I can see farther, when I, and I have a perspective of the landscape when I'm on the top of the mountain. That's... And now, with that perspective, so when we can inhabit a moment, not only do we feel it, but we make different decisions with that view. We make different decisions and we feel differently. And again, nobody can stay there. I don't believe in a arrived state of enlightenment. I believe that being human, part of this incarnation is that we have moments of being enlightened, that is, the light from within meets the light from without, and then we trip. And I'm clear, and then I'm confused, and I'm sensitive, and then I'm numb, and I'm agile, and then I spill soup all over you. And back to and the I'm, heartbeat, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's the, so the journey, is, the endless practice, is also a practice of return. We need the skills. You know, medieval monks used to say, when asked, "How do you practice your faith?" They said, "By falling down and getting up." I love that. I'm falling down and getting up. I like that. <laughs> That's the and that takes courage, which is something we're going to talk about in a minute. Uh, two quick things. Um, I only have time very quickly to get there, but I wanted to go there with you. You say in the beginning of the book that that all we need and dream is right before us. Dreams normally are, are thought of as something we desire, and so what does that mean that our dreams are right here before us in the now? Well. Dreams, we have, we have been trained to think of dreams as a destination. When my life experience has led me to accept that dreams are kindling for the fire of aliveness. I'll tell you a quick story. 
It's the first story in my book of stories, As Far as the Heart Can See. Very short story. It's about a cyclist, a bicyclist, who trains for months. You know, he really is into this. He's, you know, he's shaved his legs so there's less resistance. He's got the, all the equipment. And the day of the race, he, you know, he, he goes out and he's ahead. And as they go through the countryside and they come over a mountain and down into a valley, he's actually so far ahead that for a few seconds... He can't see the other racers. And just as he comes to the bottom of the, the, the turn, a huge, great blue heron with its wings spread swoops over his handlebars and it stuns him. It stops him. He literally stops and straddles his bike because the heron opened something he was chasing. And now the other racers are catching up and there he is straddling his bike, staring at where the heron was with its wings open. And now we cut to years later, and he's standing on his porch, and he's older, and he's looking out toward the sunset. And once in a while, someone will ask him, what cost you the race? And once in a while, without looking, he'll say, I didn't lose the race. I left it. (laughs) Now, someone can say, somebody pragmatic and very much you know, not in, really in, in tune with our conversation and say, well, that's all very nice, the heroin, that's all very poetic, but he did lose the race. He trained and he lost. Well, I hold it differently. I think he trained to meet the heron. And if you would have told him that he was training to meet the heron, he wouldn't have trained. And this is how, what I mean about dreams are there everywhere. There are herons everywhere. There are angels and messengers everywhere. And it doesn't mean it's good to train. It's wonderful to work hard. It's wonderful to strive. But humbly, humility lets us hold those initial dreams where we think we're going a little more loosely. And when they get burned up on the fire of aliveness, his life was changed by the heron, which was so much more important than winning the race. So we, we don't even know what's good for us. But our heart knows. Our heart casts dreams out so we can keep growing. We get too fixed on the dreams that we bypass our aliveness sometimes. Two, two words come to mind. The yin, the magic of life. The yang, the ego. <laughs> right? Well, yeah, and, and so... You know, this is the thing, is that we all have to have, when we talk about ego, I I think that, you know, when we tend to talk about it as the misuse of ego gets the full name. But, you know, we all have to have, just like every boat has to have a rudder or a steering wheel, we have to have an ego, but but we are not very good at developing it as a conductor of the many voices that live within us. Usually what happens, and I know these things so well because I violate them all the time. So usually what happens is when one voice within that chorus that lives in us gets too, gets so loud, we let it take over as conductor. And that's the misuse of ego. Right. And um, it happens way too much. Uh, let's go back to The Endless Practice, this wonderful book. You offer six practices that can guide one on their journey to self-discovery. And I wish we had time to go through them all. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> but let's, let's um, you know, 
take one or two of them and, and maybe you'll, uh, or maybe just even one to embellish on. And I was wondering if there was one, the one that comes to mind to me is about courage. I love the practice of courage. Um, I'm, I'm a fairly courageous lady and there's nothing that stops me. But I, and that's one of the questions that I get a lot from people is, boy, you sure have courage. Where do you get it? Who knows where you get it? Tell us where we get it and how to achieve it. Well, you know, courage, and this helped me really write that whole book on courage, which led to these insights. You know, I think the insights in the endless practice about courage are a result of that previous inquiry. And so that the original word for courage, C-O-R in the Latin, means heart. But the original idiom, that is the way it was first used, courage meant to stand by one's core. Hmm. And this has helped me tremendously in terms of understanding inner courage. Because what that means is when we stand by our core, we stand close to the foundation of all life and all courage. It's like a tree that's rooted in the earth. It has the stability of the earth that holds it up, not just its roots. And so when we stand by our core, we, we feel that stability. And our, like a tree, our branches and our leaves may get all tossed about and even broken by a storm, but not the trunk, not the roots. That stays solid. So, you know, when we stand by our core, that, you know, the, the, practice, the outer acts of courage that we all see in running into a building to save someone, they're, they're the plants that break ground, and the soil is the ground of inner courage. You know, the courage... To, to be who you are, the courage to um, put down our judgment and our assumptions so we can keep learning, the courage to listen to other points of view. There's a great, great uh, early Zen saying that says, when in an argument, never side with yourself. <laughs> That's hard to do. I love that. That's funny. That yeah. Uh, when in an argument, never side with yourself. It doesn't mean that you don't stand in your own convictions, but as John Kabat-Zinn, who I love, has said, if you stand too much in your convictions, you'll be convicted. You'll be convicted by the weight of your own opinion. So we are con- courage, courage at the level we're talking about here is a practice in openness. It's a practice in being porous. It's a practice in finding where we're connected because that's where the resilience shows itself. And I love, as I mentioned in the new book, you know, Mother Teresa's anthem was that uh, courage is doing small things with love. You know, I, I often feel and, and share with people that, you know, it seems overwhelming if you're afraid and you feel like you need to take these huge steps. Well, you know, it just starts with one, do, do one small thing with love. Stand by your core and do one small thing with love. And the next thing you know, someone's saying, hey, that was pretty courageous. And you go, what? <laughs> Let me bring this up, because if we're talking about courage, because this is the, one of the other um, practices, uh, the, oppor- the practice of opportunity encourages the trust, the trust, I love that word trust, that's so hard, to follow your heart. That made me think that trust really is a lone action, but it can't be a lone action, so talk to me. 
Well, trust, I, I, I've come to understand that striving, and there's a proper place for striving, but striving is the work of apprenticeship. Trust is the work of mastery. Hmm. Trust, you know, we are asked continually in this life, we will lose our trust in life itself, and it takes inner courage to restore our trust in life. And, you know, I know from my cancer journey, when I was terribly broken, that to be broken is no reason to see all things as broken. That when I'm broken, and when I'm not trusting, is when I actually, I need everything that I'm not. I need everything that's not broken to heal. So I need, so trust is opening our heart when it's closed. Trust is, you know, this is one of the things, okay, that, that I've, and I, 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 we all do this, but very often we take our experience, especially our painful experience, and rather than learn how to negotiate difficulty in life, we elevate that experience as a code to live by. So if I burn my hand on the stove, rather than learn how to better use heat, I teach my children, stay away from stoves. They're dangerous. And then if they don't question it, then they teach their children that stoves are evil. So now all you have to do is replace the word stove with whatever you want. Love. I burn myself in love. And now, rather than still believe in love, I say, hmm, love's pretty dangerous. You've got to stay away from love. And then I teach my children, well, all right, if you want to, go ahead. But, you know, I don't know. I wouldn't trust that love thing. And then if they don't question it, they teach their children that love is evil. So, how, you know, courage and trust, the real ground of it, the real practice of it is when we're hurt and not trusting and how not to lose faith in life because we've had a bad experience. And we need each other to be, this is not easy. So, you know, it's easy for me to talk about this to you now when I'm in a good space. But I need to remember it and I need for, you know, my loved ones to remind me so I can remind them when it's not so clear. Fascinating. Let's end with the beginning. Might we agree that in the end there's always the beginning? And if we're all essentially seekers of what? Peace? Is there peace to be found in the acceptance of there's always a beginning? There's always a beginning. And I would say that the beginning is not behind us, but about to open within us. I love that. Do we have time to close with a poem? I would love a poem. Well, let me, let me share this poem. It's from Reduced to Joy. It's called, Where is God? A question that has always been asked, can never be answered. This won't answer it. This is a conversation with that great space. Where is God? It's as if what is unbreakable, the very pulse of life, waits for everything else to be torn away. And then, in the bareness that only silence and suffering and great love can expose, it dares to speak through us and to us. It seems to say, if you want to last, hold on to nothing. If you want to know love, well, let in everything. If you want to feel the presence of everything, stop counting the things that break along the way. Mark Nepo says so many incredible things. One of my favorite quotes from his new book, The Endless Practice, Becoming Who You Were Born to Be, is, there's a sweet ache to being alive 
that lets us know we are here. Mark Nepo just might be coming to a city near where you are when he joins Oprah Winfrey's 2014 The Life You Want weekend tour. For details, be sure to visit Mark's website at marknepo.com. It was a delight speaking with you, Mark. Thanks for being my guest on the Hallie Caster Jane Show and bringing to talk radio fine minds such as yours. You've been great. Oh, well, thank you. It was a joy, a joy to delve into all this together. Podcasts of current and past shows are always available to listen to free on iTunes under the Hallie Casser Jane Show. The Hallie Casser Jane Show was also available for download via Spreaker.com, Stitcher.com, BlogTalkRadio.com, and a host of other venues. Google the Hallie Casser Jane Show and you will find us. Of course, podcasts of our shows, both past and present, are always posted for your listening pleasure at HallieCasserJane.com, which I hope you'll visit often for the latest information on our upcoming segments. Oh, and while you're at HallieCasserJane.com, don't forget to visit my blog to read my latest musings. I'll be back next week, same time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for another edition of the Hallie Jane Show, Talk Radio for Fine Minds, brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com forward slash the Hallie Jane Show. Audible.com features over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Stay in touch, won't you? Remember, that's HallieCasserJane.com. Discover us on Facebook at HallieCasserJane and on Twitter at HallieCJ. I love to hear from you. So, till we meet again, this is Hallie Casser Jane. It's a wrap. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? 
In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.